As we get into today's episode, I just want to take a second and remind you that there's a ton of extra content available to the members of Film and Whiskey Nation who support us through our Patreon. Check us out on patreon.com slash filmwhiskey. In 1995, director Michael Mann and stars Pacino and De Niro gave the world a tense crime thriller that pits two men who will stop at nothing to do their jobs. In 2023, we take a return trip to the Highland region of Scotland to try one of our favorite brands. The film is Heat. The whiskey is Glen Morangy, a star. And we'll review them both. This is the Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are continuing our series of Michael Mann films with his 1995 masterpiece, Heat. Brad? It's getting hot. It's getting hot in here, Bob. First point of order about the movie Heat. How great is it that you have a movie that the whole title is just Heat? And it's the best (laughs) title of a movie ever. Like, what an awesome name for a movie. It just totally fits. Yeah. They use the title in the movie, like, maybe two or three times too many, but it works because it's Pacino and De Niro. (laughs) It's just so good, man. Brad, I want to very quickly give a little bit of history on me and the movie Heat. We talked a little bit about Michael Mann. Did you guys and like go out a little bit in high school? We, yeah, we, we, we had a dalliance <laughs> there for a minute. Um, oh, okay. We talked a little bit last week about my checkered past with the director, Michael Mann, and it kind of started about a year ago when I finally got around to watching Heat. It had been like number one on my to watch list for a long, long time, and I was kind of wondering if I should just put it on the on the list for the podcast before I see it. And eventually I just caved. I'd seen too many things that said, oh, this is one of the hundred best movies ever made. And if you haven't seen this movie, you're missing out. And I was like, well, I don't want to miss out. So I watched it (laughs) and I got to say, it was like a seven and a half for me at that time. I just thought this, it's a really long movie, Brad. It's like two hours and 50 minutes long. And I'm sure we'll discuss that point, but How, how long was, uh, was collateral? Oh, I don't know. Just under two. It was like, yeah, 205, somewhere in there. See, I feel like uh, this might be a hot take. Uh, Hot take heat. I feel like Michael Mann would be a great 90 minute director. Mm. Like if he could master the 90 minute film that we often talk about uh, as some of the greatest films ever created. (laughs) I, I just I think his movies would be killer if they were just a lot tighter. Yeah. So that was what really stuck out to me the first time I watched it. And I was not really looking forward to watching this movie again because I never like being the guy that comes across like I have a hot take, like everyone likes this movie and Bob doesn't. And I have to say, watching it this time, I started watching it at like 11 p.m. one night like an idiot. And I made it 50 minutes in and I was like, all right, I got to go to bed. I, I pressed pause at the 50 minute mark, went to bed, watched it the next day. And it flowed like gangbusters. It was incredible. It was like I watched an hour of prologue and then I treated the the second two hours as if it was a different movie. And this movie worked beautifully that way. I couldn't believe it, dude. Like my score on this movie is going to go up exponentially. Here's a question for you. Do you think like like there's part of me that feels like your score shouldn't be valid here? Because I, I feel like Michael Mann would be angry with you if you didn't just watch his movie. A hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But, All right. With but, that out of the way. Yeah, I mean, my score I is my score. You. I don't really care. <laughs> <laughs> no, without the, with that out of the way, I agree with you a hundred percent. I watched I watched it all on the same day, but I literally cut it in half. Mm-hmm. I I watched an hour and 25 minutes of it while my daughter was napping and then finished the hour and 25 minutes later. And I remember pausing in it and being like, oh, my God, I'm only half like literally halfway through. This is kind of a little bit of torture. But around that hour 30 mark, the movie just picks up and has some legs. 
And it, it get, just gets so much better as it goes on. The first hour or so, 60, 70 minutes, is just like a prologue that keeps going on and on and on. Yeah, that's a funny thing, though, is that even though it's very slow paced in that first hour or so, I don't know that I would say that it drags. It's just it's it's almost like a completely separate movie. It's a it's a very meditative and necessary setup to who these characters are. And then in that final two hours is most of the action and the suspense and the tension ratchets up and it moves like gangbusters. But that first hour really feels like it comes from I don't want to say it comes from a different movie because they're definitely of a of a piece. But it's like if they released the first <laughs> the first hour as a television episode that you had to watch before you went to the theater to see the second two hours, I, I would almost say like, oh, that makes sense. You know? Yeah. No. Yeah, it, it totally does. I will say if I had to describe like the theme of this movie, I would just say this. The very first Grand Theft Auto came out in 1997, and I'm pretty sure that every iteration of that that gaming franchise has been trying to more perfectly perfect what happened in the movie Heat. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And like, we're, we're gonna... like the movie is just GTA on a movie screen. <laughs> and we're going to get into talking about the very long legs that this movie has had and the shadow that it has cast over this genre of movie. It's a super influential film. And I think that's part of why it's held in such high esteem today. But before we get into all that, Brad, let's take a step back here. Let's talk about the fact that this was your first time seeing the movie Heat, and that gives us a wonderful opportunity to move into Brad Explains, the part of the podcast where Brad breaks down the plot of the film that he has just seen, often for the first time. Brad, I'm going to put 60 seconds on the clock here. Can you break down the plot of Heat in one minute or less? All right. De Niro and Kilmer are, are bad guys, and Pacino is a good guy. And Kilmer doesn't really matter that much. He's just kind of a henchman to to De Niro. And he's married to Ashley Judd. Uh, De Niro's not married to anybody because he's got to leave anything in 30 seconds flat if he feels the heat around the corner. Uh, Pacino is the heat. He's a police officer. He's on his third marriage. Uh, his stepdaughter is depressed. And he is charged with figuring out what the heck is going on with De Niro and all the money he's stealing. And so... They they track each other and they play games with each other and they have coffee together the one time. And then De Niro and his crew steal money from a bank and then they shoot everybody and everything. And and one of the guy gets killed and Val Kilmer gets away and De Niro gets away. Ten and seconds. De Niro goes to kill the guy who betrayed him and Val Kilmer runs off and Ashley Judd saves him from the cops and Pacino shoots De Niro and he's dead. <laughs> Boom. The end. Heat. Oh, by the way, did we mention that these 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 are spoiler filled episodes on Film and Whiskey? I yeah, no, I there was no spoilers there, Bob. No, 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 no. <laughs> All right, man. I I guess I want to start by saying this. Last week with Collateral, I kind of went in on how obvious the metaphors were, and how I hated how much the characters uh, explicitly say their internal motivations. And I thought it was a little too on the nose. And I was really worried that like, well, if that was on the nose, what's heat going to be like? And I have to <laughs> say, the first thing that impressed me about this movie is that the script is sophisticated enough that, you know, it's not like it's the most subtle thing in the world, but they're not coming out and saying explicitly like, this is my issue and this is why I can't connect with human beings and this is blah, 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 blah. Like it's it's always veiled in short little phrases and then you see behind their eyes the realization of you know the toll that it's taking to be this dedicated to their craft so I, I mean the first point in its column for me is that this is just a much more i guess i'd call it subtle portrayal of what collateral was trying to do yeah i mean i think that the the thing that you have going for this movie that collateral doesn't is that a collateral has Tom Cruise in his first ever villain role and maybe only villain role. Uh, and B Jamie Foxx is, is a great actor, but he's still a little bit up and coming in that. I think that in heat, you have the prototypical mobster slash police officer in Pacino and De Niro, just at, at, at like the peak of their career. Mm. Like they're not too old where they're kind of just relying on what they've always done. 
but they have so much experience that they elevate this movie to another level that that the movie itself i don't know if it totally deserves it but they are incredible in this film yeah they really are and you've got pacino i guess let's do this let's start talking about the performances because i have many many thoughts on both of them (laughs) pacino is in full pacino mode throughout most of this movie and it's been really funny to watch him talk about this character after the fact because he talks about how apparently you know it was part of the character that vincent hannah was on a lot of coke and it was like you don't say you know what i mean (laughs) but then that was kind of cut out of the final cut of the movie and so he just looks like he's on coke but you don't actually see him doing coke it was cut out yeah there it is Ah. (laughs) i really struggle with pacino as an actor and that's not to say that he's not incredible and electric in this movie but When you watch him in The Godfather and The Godfather 2, and even to some extent like Dog Day Afternoon, where he has these moments where he blows up, but then that's a very internal performance. By the time you get past Scarface in 83, Pacino embraces the Pacino-ness of himself and becomes kind (laughs) of like a an outsized version of himself. And he never goes back. And like like post-Scarface Pacino is just a different person than pre-Scarface Pacino. And In this movie, like, you know, it's been mocked to death. But when he slaps his hand on the table and starts screaming, give me all you got, give me all you got. And then the scene where he has Hank Azaria cornered and he's just talking about she's got a great ass. Like, it's (laughs) it's like, why did you do those line readings that way, Al Pacino? I don't understand. Like, what are we going for here? Uh, She's got a great ass. (laughs) <laughs> was a was a uh, ad lib line. You don't he say that up. <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> but I say all that to say this. When you get to that coffee shop scene at the one hour and 30 minute mark, everything stands still. And you can tell that the actors in that scene have so much respect for each other. And Pacino is really, truly bringing his A game. And it is such a beautiful uh, example of watching people react to each other rather than trying to outact one another. And it's honestly the best, I would say like after 1980, it might be my favorite moment of Al Pacino acting ever. It's so good, Brad. Yeah, it, it's an incredible scene. I, I think that for me was incredible. And I think when you pair that, those moments he has with De Niro with him saving his stepdaughter, in a in a terribly brutal scene to watch kind of it was kind of like out of left field for me mm-hmm. i was like wait what, what's going on did somebody like come in and try to kill his stepdaughter it was like oh wait no i whoa those moments that he has trying to save her and then sitting in the in the waiting room with his wife soon to be ex-wife question mark i just thought that he brought a gravitas to to those scenes that he was a little bit missing the rest of the movie All right. So let's talk a little bit about De Niro then. I mean, I feel like we're getting right into the meat of this today, but it's it's a two person movie, essentially. And this is a really great De Niro performance. And I think that De Niro has always been a bit underrated for his ability to convey interiority. And this is one of those performances that we love from De Niro. We've watched a few of his performances this year where he's a guy that doesn't have many words to say. And because of that, De Niro has to find other ways of conveying what's inside that person. And he did it in one very specific way in Taxi Driver. He did it in another very specific way in Raging Bull. And now we're seeing a different iteration of that here. This is like low key, one of my favorite De Niro performances. It's just it's very quiet. It sneaks up on you. It's really subtle. I think it's a great performance. Yeah, I mean, I think that De Niro in Goodfellas is similar, but there's a lot of anger undergirding that performance mm-hmm. that's like just boiling under the surface whereas i think in this one there's a coolness to his character and a confidence that comes with being like a, a master thief mm. that he doesn't break under any circumstances and so I, while i think that there's similar portrayals i think that when you dive into the nuance of each character you can actually tell that like de niro is just an incredible actor. Yeah. Like he he draws out exactly what needs to be drawn out of each character. And I'll I'll be honest with you, man. Before we did this podcast, I don't know if I would have put De Niro as one of the greatest actors of all time. But at this point, we've probably seen him in five, six movies, maybe. Yeah. 
De Niro is incredible. Like, oh yeah, he is. He is on another level from almost any actor I've ever seen, Bob. Well, and that's another. You know, he's. It's another one of those examples where a comedian figures out that he can do a pretty good impression of De Niro doing that De Niro face. And then every comedian has to do a De Niro impression. And it's not like you're doing an impression of De Niro in his more subtle moments. You're doing the most outsized version of that. And so then eventually that starts to become what people think Robert De Niro's like. And then you watch him in a movie like Taxi Driver. I really am so Mm. grateful that we watched Taxi Driver and Raging Bull back to back, because even just in the few years between those performances, I mean, the physical transformation is one thing, but. The complete and utter 180 differences between those two characters and how he plays them both so perfectly that you you could see them both as real life people and not as De Niro mm-hmm. playing someone. He's one of the most versatile actors we've ever had. And I don't think he gets enough credit for that versatility. Yeah, I mean, when he's sitting at the uh, coffee shop at the diner with Pacino and he just the when Pacino basically calls him a two bit, you know, gangster and he the way he looks at him with such derision and is like what do you see me knocking up liquor stores like like come on like he delivers that line with so much tenacity and force of will that like i almost had to sit back i was like oh damn like like de niro's going for it that scene is played so beautifully because it it takes you through like the initial arm's lengthness of those two guys And how Mm -hmm. very quickly De Niro just kind of sets the table and he says, you do what you do best. He says, I do what I do best, you know, uh, taking down scores. You do what you do best trying to catch guys like me. And that starts him off on this this mutual respect to the point where there's this really great exchange where they say, you know, they talk about uh, Pacino says how how his life is a total freak show. And that's really this vulnerable moment where this is the only guy Pacino can confess this to because he's talking Mm -hmm. to himself. And uh, he's like, no, you don't want my life either. My life is a freak show. And and then he says, uh, but there's really nothing else I'd rather do. And Pacino, De Niro says, uh, me neither, I guess. And then they have yeah. this like this moment of just a little bit of a grin between both of them. Like this is destiny. This is what we are destined to do as people, whether it's good or bad, whether we're going to destroy our lives in the process. There's nothing else for us. And there's a respect. And then immediately after that moment. It's like this resolve comes over both of them where they're like, hey, I just want to let you know I'm going to kill you if it comes to that. And then and then De Niro says the same thing. And then it's like, all right, cool. See you later. And it's such a kind of cold and like it it almost like sends shivers up your spine when you see the uh, the commitment of both of them to what they know they have to do. It's so well played. Yeah, I mean, truly one of the greatest diner scenes of all time. Uh, I'm realizing as I as I thought about that phrase, though, greatest diner scenes of all time. Somebody on the internet has the editing prowess to cut together another of the greatest dining scene room scenes of all time. I want them to somehow create a mashup of the diner scene from Heat with the diner scene from When Harry Met Sally. <laughs> <laughs> and just have like Pacino and De Niro are trying to have this conversation, but the, all they hear in the background is Meg Ryan moaning. And then all of a sudden you just cut to the diner scene from Pulp Fiction and everyone's <laughs> pointing guns at each other. Yes. That is all I want out of the internet today. <laughs> oh, that's great, man. All right. Where do you want to go from here, Brad? Do we want to keep talking about the rest of the cast? Is there something in the movie specifically that you want to dive in on a little bit? Uh, I mean, can we agree that John Voight has the worst hair and makeup team of all time? They really like, tried I, to do like, something with him here. And I don't know what I, that was. I thought that Voight, I thought that Voight was fine. I think he, I think, I honestly think John Voight is a great handler role. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like for, for criminals or for spies or whatever. Like, I think he's great for that role. But they did the man dirty with with hair and makeup. (laughs) John Voight is only, I think, five, four or five years older than De Niro. There's like a four year difference separating like Voight, Pacino and then De Niro again. And it's just it's really Mm -hmm. funny to see how they try to make some of them look much older than others in this movie. Uh, De Niro, for what it's worth, you know, we we had this conversation with Sylvester Stallone in Rocky Four and talked about how that was probably the best looking Sylvester Stallone has ever been. Dude, the beard. De Niro in this movie 
might be the most attractive version of De Niro. Yeah, easily. He He's kind of in that George Clooney phase of like, he's starting to gray, but he's not, you know, in his 70s yet. Mm-hmm. And he like, he looks good, man. He sure does. He's a good looking dude. Once again, you have the return of the gray suit, which we had last week with Vincent mm. in Collateral. Yeah, and, you know, once again, I would say that it's a very on the nose kind of metaphor for the fact that this is a bad guy, but he's our protagonist and he operates in shades of gray because he is uh, a thief. But it's a movie about honor among thieves. And I, so, like, I don't love the metaphor, but I really like the costuming. And I think that it suits De Niro a lot better than it suited the uh, fake wig version of Tom Cruise last week. Dude, I'm telling you, if they don't dye his hair gray. I think Tom Cruise looks incredible in a gray suit. It's a wig, it was, though. It it's just... not even dyed. Like, it's very obviously a wig, right? Uh, I don't know, man. I feel like it was dyed. No. I, I could be wrong. Whatever they did, it doesn't look good. It wasn't. It doesn't work. Uh, it does work on De Niro, though, because he had gray hair, yeah. and it, it just worked for him. I'm curious what you think about Val Kilmer in this. Val Kilmer's an interesting actor. Uh, I've never been convinced that he's a great actor and I've seen him in a lot of lead roles too. You know, he uh, very famously played Jim Morrison in the doors and he gave his all to that role. It was a really great performance, but I've always just kind of found Val Kilmer to be trying really hard in everything he does. And I get that a little bit here, but I really love that they've made him like the strung out. I don't want to call him a junkie because you don't really see him actually doing drugs, but strung out in debt gambler trying to hold his life together. And I think he does a really beautiful job of playing the nuances of that character that the script gives him because his character is in a lot of ways the opposite of De Niro's character. He has too many attachments, but where De Niro looks at him as like, what the hell are you doing? You, you're not supposed to have any attachments. Kilmer's like, listen, man, I, like I'm okay making my bed and sleeping in it. I'm not going to live a life where I'm alone all the time, and I like having a wife and a child. and. If you're asking me to leave my wife in 30 seconds to avoid going to jail, like that's not worth it to me. And I really think that he does a good job with that. Also, ironically, he's the only one who makes it away. Yeah. Yeah. And he has to leave his wife in the process. So De Niro's right all along. That's the great irony of it. Mm hmm. No, I I for the longest time have never once thought that Val Kilmer was a good actor until I watched Heat. Hmm. Like, watching Heat, I was, like, really blown away. Now, the bar was really low, so it's not like I'm saying he's, like, an A-plus performance here. But, like, dude turns in a really solid performance next to two incredible performances from Nero and Pacino. And, like, uh, in a, like, I don't know if this is facetious to say or not, but, like, he deserved to have his name on the title card. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, to have his name on the top of the movie. I thought he carried his weight incredibly well here alongside a wonderful performance from Ashley Judd. Now you and I were talking about this right before we hit record, but it's worth repeating 1995 Ashley Judd with bleached hair looked remarkably similar to young Charlize Theron and how they used to make her up in early movies where she was stuck playing people's wives and girlfriends. Like I, it's, I legit thought it was Charlize. And then I heard her talk and I was like, wait a second, that's not Charlize. And I had to look it up. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I think that it's also indicative of like they made everybody look exactly the same, which really sucks. <laughs> but but yeah, man, like by, it by really... everybody, you mean that's how they treated women in the 90s. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it really caught me off guard for sure. All right. So that's that's our actors. I think that the action scenes in this suffer from a similar problem that they did in Collateral, Bob. Interesting, because I found this to have a lot better geography than like like establishment of the geography than collateral did. And in particular, I'm thinking of like, you know, the big heist scene does a great job of laying out the interior of that bank and then what the street looks like outside. And then when it spills over into that kind of plaza where Tom Sizemore gets shot, you have a really good sense of where everyone is at all times. I thought that stretch was pretty phenomenally done as well as the the opening heist with the the armed armored car like i thought that was really well done too i think i like the armored car heist better because it goes by a little quicker mm. i think what i'm thinking of is once uh you know de niro and kilmer 
and uh, Sizemore make it outside and their car has crashed and they're like advancing with their, you know, assault rifles against the police officers. There's a certain point of the action where I'm like, oh, I've seen the same sequence of shots like six times in a row now. <laughs> like one of them will move up and shoot at the police line of police cars. The other one will run forward while the other one's shooting at the police cars and then turn around and shoot at the guys behind them. Then we'll get a shot of the police officers at the police line. We'll get a shot of the detectives, police officers following them from behind. And then we'll go back and we'll show them shooting at the police line again and somebody advancing. Mm. And he literally did that like six times in a row. Now, is it effective? Are there a lot of bullets flying? I mean, yes, there's thousands of bullets being shot. But there was a certain point where I was like, oh, this is the exact same problem I had with the club scene in Collateral. Mm. Like, it, like, he's not raising the tension. He's not raising the stakes. It's just kind of the same action scenes over and over again for a solid three or four minutes until they finally kind of split off and, you know, somebody gets shot and he's helping helping Val Kilmer off and the other dude is picking up a child and and it it changes and it's great action and I thought they did an incredible job with it. But there's a few moments like that throughout the movie where I'm like, man, he just needs to tighten it up a little bit. And uh, stop just relying on the same shots over and over and over again. I'm going to disagree with you, but only because of where that scene comes in the course of the movie. There's been two hours almost of build up to that moment. Like they've been planning that particular heist for probably an hour and 15 minutes and building the team and, and understanding that they've already got the heat on them and trying to figure out what's going on with this Wayne Grow guy that betrayed them in the first thing. And so there's this paranoia that sets in and this sense of like, this is doomed from the start. Like you just know this is not going to go well for any of them. And so you're waiting on it to fall apart. And I think having them get trapped between, you know, the two fronts, <laughs> the opposing lines of uh, police that are shooting at them, that sort of like incremental movement they're trying to make to escape I really did feel the tension there because you come to care for all three of those main people in that uh, that gang, as well as for Dennis Haysbert, the poor guy who just gets roped into being oh. their uh, getaway driver. And so, like, with each successive attempt to, like, gain half a block, I think you really do understand there's no way they're getting out of this. Like, this is not going to end well at all. And so yeah. it, it takes on a more tragic tone whereas the one in collateral was like you didn't even know you were going to that nightclub until a minute before it happened because tom cruise is playing everything real close to the chest and not you know not revealing where they're going or what number this is on his list of who to kill or whatever so it's like it was that was a cool scene but i was with you more on that one than i am on this one uh can i just say that you said it was dennis haysbert yeah you know how like movies they'll have like a second director that'll shoot you know other yeah, like, yeah. action scenes and stuff. I'm pretty sure that they hired the Coen brothers to shoot his part of the movie because he just has the most sad and like nihilistic arc I've ever seen <laughs> <laughs> for a character. Like he's like getting out of jail. He's trying to make his life right. And then this, you know, this kitchen manager is just a, a jerk to him and putting him down. He gets a chance to make a little money and, and get back into the action and he just dies like there's no there, there's no celebration of his life. There's no nothing. He's just meaningless and everything's meaningless for him. And I just thought that that was probably the saddest part of the whole movie because I really liked him a lot. It's so funny <laughs> to like have an association with an actor and then go back and see their prior work, because my first exposure to him was I don't know if you ever watched the TV show 24 when that was like mm -hmm. a big thing. But he was the president on 24. And oh, and so like I've always had this this image of him as like he's this, you know, dapper, upstanding citizen. And then he becomes the Allstate guy. And so like, you yeah. know, yeah. I'm like, oh, it's the Allstate guy. And then he's like in a kitchen being like, fuck you. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, <laughs> the Allstate guy. What the hell? <laughs> like, so that was a really that was a really jarring thing. And speaking of jarring things, Brad, if there is one element of this movie that I do not think works very well. I guess there's two things, but they're kind of related to each other. It all has to do with this character of Wayne Grow, the guy that betrays the gang and like screws everything up in the first heist because he's just a sadistic guy and just kills people for sport, basically. 
And then he kind of sells them out and starts working with the cops and with these uh, like these other guys that got their money stolen in the beginning, like these high powered criminals. The character of Wayne Grow just does not work for me, Brad. I don't think they needed to make him be like a serial killer in addition to being like a sadistic bank yep. robber. Like there's this whole subplot that's kind of kind of like Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs a little bit. Mm, yeah. And it doesn't yep. make any sense and it doesn't belong in this movie and it doesn't really advance the plot or teach you anything more that you needed to know other than this guy's just sadistic. I just don't know that you needed any of that. Yeah, no, he he easily could have had his opening scene with the, you know, the armored car robbery gotten almost killed by De Niro and then that's it. Like that's all the motivation he needs to screw over these guys, but I think that they were trying to bridge the gap of like Wayne Grow is the thing that gets them connected to De Niro and, and the rest of the crew. And so he had to do something to draw them in. And so that something was to kill a bunch of prostitutes, mm. I guess. Yeah. So it's like, it, but it feels very contrived. Like, uh, yeah, it, it just, it feels like they could have picked him up for some sort of simple crime. And then he's like, hey, instead of putting me in jail, I could give you Macaulay. He's the guy that's stealing all the money. Right. Like, I, I don't know. It could, it could have been a lot simpler. Yeah. And then going along with that, they keep, <laughs> they keep, uh, giving characters dialogue where they have to describe guys as a hot dog. And I'm like, what is this dialogue? Because like, I know Michael Mann finished writing this script in like 1979, but even in 1979, I feel like people would read that and be like, what is this from the thirties? Like what? Like there's a moment where the prostitute looks at Wingro and she's like, you're a real hot dog. And I'm, and I'm like, was this supposed to pass for like effective and realistic prostitute dialogue in 1995 because i'm pretty sure that this would only work in like a looney tunes cartoon bob i i don't know how much time you spent with prostitutes in 1995 but that that, that's the lingo my friend that's right behind closed doors everyone knows that their lady calls them a real hot dog you're a real hot dog (laughs) yeah see (laughs) she just takes off a mask and reveals that she's actually edward g robinson underneath (laughs) (laughs) chomping on a cigar (laughs) oh man bob i need to drink some uh scotch if i'm gonna keep talking about edward g robinson (laughs) (laughs) let's do it man hey there you cake eaters it's me george b stagger back again to delight your ears with a 60 second whiskey appraisal today's episode is brought to you by doc swinson's The legendary blending wizards over there have created for us an incredible new addition to their exploratory cask series, the French Toasted. This delicious pour is a straight bourbon whiskey finished in French oak casks, and my oh my is it the bee's knees. The nose is a bombastic balance of butter and pecans, with vanilla and oak on the side. On the palate you've got some incredible caramel mixing with notes of orange creamsicle, rich cheesecake, and black pepper. To finish things off, we've got a nice Kentucky hug to go along with a bunch of pepper and oak. There is some long-lasting flavor here, folks, and I'll be darned if Doc Swinson's didn't knock this one out of the park. It's that good, folks. Head on over to your local speakeasy or go to docswhiskey.com in order to partake in the hottest juice in town. Until next time, this is George B. Stagger signing off. All right, so today we are checking out the Glenmorangie A Star. Now, this is a really, really interesting bottle, Brad, because I picked this up in the state of Ohio when they stopped carrying it here. It was on their last call shelves, and so it got knocked down a little bit. I think it's usually around a $100 bottle. This is a one of the fancier bottles from the Glenmorangie line. It's aged only in bourbon casks. It's non-chill filtered, and they bottle it at 52.5% ABV or 105 proof. So it's a higher proof offering from Glenmorangie. Brad, we you know, we've we've sung the praises of Glenmorangie for years on this podcast. But for the most part, we try to stick with their like 50 to $60 range of stuff. We tried the um the Cadbull Estate, that's usually a little bit pricier. And we tried the 18-year, which is like 120 bucks, And that was phenomenal. So I'm really expecting great things for this Astar. Yeah. I mean, it's it's barrel-proof, is in ex-bourbon barrels. I, I'm really excited for it, man. All right, man. Uh, let's just dive right in. 
I'll spoil things a little bit. I sipped this before we got on tonight, and I might be in love with this, question mark? On the nose, like the very first thing I got was uh, apple juice, not apple cider, like almost like a kid's apple juice. And then right behind that was a lot of strawberry. I got almost like a strawberry jelly or um, I don't know, what's that? What's it called? Like jello, like strawberry jello. It's very, very fruity, really sweet, almost candy sweet to me. Uh, I'm going to give it an eight out of 10 on the nose just because these are not notes I typically get on a Glenmorangie. So there's something different going on here and I like it a lot. Huh. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10 on the nose. For me, there's a lot of must going on here. There's a little bit of honey. I get some fruitiness, but but more of like a dried tart cherry. Um, there's a little bit of nutmeg. And then the longer I sit with it, the more I, I think that that oak is really coming through strong here. It's interesting. Um, it is important to note, and this is not to undercut your score at all. We uh we drank some Johnny Drum last week, and you told me right before we got on then, like, hey, I'm feeling a little under the weather, so my score might be affected a little bit. And you've like this this cold has been hanging on with you for about a week now. So I know that it you has. drank this when you were not feeling great. You're feeling a little bit better today. Um, I I obviously I trust your palate enough that I'm not gonna like undercut your scores here. But it is important to note, like, but Brad we all G, know that you are Brad G. Not a hundred percent today. I. Always am 100%, Bob. <laughs> there's there's no such thing as a less than 100% Brad G. All right. I'm going to pass that one up. Okay. <laughs> on the on the palate, on the taste here, this is where I really, really love this because it is almost like two distinct whiskeys for me and different than anything I've ever had from Glenmore and G. On the front of the palate to the mid palate, it is really sweet. It's the sweetest Glenmore and G scotch I've ever had. Uh, it's just like... It's apple juice. It's all those things I noted. It's got melon. It's got strawberry to it. It hits your mid palate and you go to swallow. And then all of a sudden, it's like an explosion of smokiness and ash and char. And it's mixed with that really wonderful kind of Highland Scotch flavor from the barley that you get there. It doesn't turn super bitter, but it is like a, a very distinct dif- like dividing line on your tongue between sweet and 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 kind of pleasantly thin and then immediately like, hey, this is 105 proof. Are you ready for this? And it just is a flavor bomb, man. I'm going to give it a nine and a half on the palate. Yeah, I am not there with you, Bob. Mm. I, I think that sickness or no sickness, this is a little bit rough for me, man. Uh, for me, the oak is just overpowering. Uh, there's a there's a decent amount of barley. It's very tannic for me. And then I was sitting here for a while. There's just this awkward note that I couldn't place. And I finally realized it kind of tastes like Dove soap a little bit. Uh, explain the flavor of Dove soap to me, Brad. I'm not familiar. Uh, I don't know. It's it's just like soapy, dovey, soapy. Yeah, there there's something about <laughs> it. I don't know what you know, chemicals uh, are in soap that give it its smell, but it reminds me of the smell of Dove soap, but on my tongue. Wow. I don't like it that much. Uh, It's not terrible. It's like, there's still a a bit of flavor there where I can tell that this is Glenn Morangy, but I'm only going to give it a six out of 10. Man, dude, I was so excited too. I was like, finally a scotch that Brad and I can agree on like (laughs) false. Okay. On the finish, I do think that's where this one is going to get dinged a little bit. It's got some of those great kind of like piney and vegetal notes to it, but it gets a little bit bitter. I do think the word tannic is a good word for this. It doesn't have the drying effect that like real tannins have, but it does kind of remind me of that kind of like, you know, inside of a wine barrel, cream of tartar kind of flavor. And so I'm only going to give it a seven on the finish. Uh, I think the finish actually comes up a little. Uh, bit of course, for me. you do. Oh my god! <laughs> the the reason being, I, I get a lot of like a toasted oak. There's a lot of the barley coming through that sits on your palate. For me, the only time I got something relatively sweet on this experience was on the finish. Like after it had sat on my palate for a while, I had swallowed. I was done with it. I got a little bit of vanilla notes coming through that I enjoyed. So. It's not too far off from the uh, the palette, but I'll give it a six and a half on the finish. All right. That takes us to balance. 
like, listen, I gave it a nine and a half on the palette and only a seven on the finish. So it's not a perfect experience here, but I am still going to give it an eight on the balance. I think there's a lot more in the pros column than there is in the cons column here. So I'm at an eight. Uh, I'm at a five on balance. I, I just don't think that what they're trying to do here works, Bob. Like, I, I don't know if there's much more to say than that, but the the movement from flavor to flavor isn't great for me, and, and I, I don't care for it. This is far and away the harshest you've ever been on a Glenn Morangy product. Yeah, and, and I, can, I can say it with confidence to say, I love Glenn Morangy. I, I think that they make incredible stuff, and they're allowed to whiff every once in a while. Mm. It's okay. Uh, yeah, I don't think this is a whiff. And so that's where we differ here, Brad. Have you seen what this is currently retailing for around the country? Well, uh, kind of. Like in the state of Ohio, it was $60 and then it was on sale for 48 And now you can't find it anywhere because I'm guessing they, they discontinued it. So I honestly, I don't know, Bob. What Where have you seen it at? Yeah. So I, here's the thing about the Astar is that like they released it back in 2008 and then they re-released it in, I think, 2017, and maybe they did a release in 2018, but it's not like a recurring product that they put out. So it's hard to pinpoint because I don't want to say it's discontinued as much as it was just a special release. It seems like you can still find it pretty readily available around the country if you're looking for it, but you might have to go to a certain store that's out of the way or get it on an online retailer. When it was released, it retailed at about 75 bucks. I would say now you're looking at like at least $100. So, Brad, I don't know. Like, just go ahead and pick what price point you think we should be evaluating this at. I mean, I would say what you can currently purchase it at. So, right. so let's just put it on the dot, triple digits, $100. I truly think that aside from the Quinta Rubin, this might be the best Glenmorangie product I've had. And it's it's between this and the 18 for second place. And I'd have to go back and try the 18 again. But... I really like this, man. It's so different from what you normally get with that Glen Morangy flavor profile. I like it a lot. $100 is pricey, but I actually think that this is a pretty good value, Brad. I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10. Honestly, when I was thinking it was 60 bucks, I gave it a 3 out of 10. At $100, I'm going to give this a 1 out of 10, Bob. So when I, do when I first talked to you about this yesterday, you told me that you thought it was just okay. And I feel yeah. like you actively hate it now. So, like, what what changed about this experience for you? Uh, nothing. I I genuinely think it's just okay. And at a hundred dollars, that is that's just a bad value. <laughs> like, if if this was a thirty five to forty dollar whiskey, sure, like six seven out of ten on value. Like, it's a cheap scotch, great. It's not that good, Bob. All right. I'm going to try it. I'm going to try it again in a few weeks. I have enough left. I'm going to try it again. We'll see where I'm at. And if I if I change my mind, if I, you know, was sick and it wasn't great, I will come on the podcast and tell you. All right. I'll hold but you to that. But as of now, I'm going to give it a 1 out of 10 on value. That brings my total score to a 25.5 oh out of 50. Oh my gosh. Yeah, Brad, I really do think that like regardless of if, if you end up liking it better or not, I think just trying it when you're not under the weather is going to bring that score up to like at least a 30 because I was just scoring out our whiskeys for the season so far today. And mm -hmm. that's your lowest scored whiskey of the season. And I know yeah. I know in my heart of hearts that this is better than Jameson cold <laughs> brew. <laughs> so, like, I think you should just give it another try, even if it's just to bump it up a couple a couple points here. But I am at a thirty nine point five out of 50. Ooh. Which brings us to a 65 out of 100 or a 32.5 out of 50. I think that is criminally low. You probably think it is criminally high, and that is how numbers work. Yeah, I mean, I, I will say, though, I totally recommend. Go buy it. Get a pour <laughs> of it. Big fan. Oh, my gosh. You're you're real sassy today. I'm, I'm allowed sassy, to sassy Brad has shown up today. I'm allowed to be sassy, Bob. <laughs> All right, man. I'm, I'm at so 100%, remember? Let's direct that sass at the movie Heat. What do you say? Uh, forget that. I'm going to direct it at you with two facts and a falsehood. <laughs> let's get to it. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. 
That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly, it's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. All right, everybody, that was Glenn Morangy, a star, which was not a star in our estimation. He's a star in my estimation. Speak for yourself, my good man. <laughs> I'm speaking for the podcast, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Well, speaking for the podcast then, Brad, I will say that uh, I have a stellar record at this season's game of two facts and a falsehood, and nothing can prove otherwise. Mm -hmm. So let's continue my uh, 48-game winning streak here. (laughs) Two facts and a falsehood is the part of the show where Brad presents three items to me, all of them as fact. One of them is a complete fabrication, and I have to guess which one is the falsehood. Brad, go ahead and hit us with your two facts and a falsehood. Apparently, the I'm the Washington Generals over here. <laughs> Fact number one, primarily due to the shootout scene about halfway through the film, Heat, at the time, set the record for the most shots fired in a movie with 4,478 shots being fired throughout the movie. Now, I, I will say that is not like, you know, in all the takes. That's just what you see on the final product. Hmm. Okay. Fact number two, Wayne Grow, played by Kevin Gage, is based on a real Chicago criminal named Wayne Grow, who ratted out some influential Chicago criminals. According to Michael Mann, Wayne Grow went missing. His body was found in northern Mexico, where it had been nailed to the wall of a shed. Yikes. Fact number three, during the bank shootout, Mann wanted to realistically portray the damage caused by the gunfire, so he took several of the cars used in the scene. To, uh, and he took them to a firing range and shot them up with real rifles. The bullet holes were then filled with Bondo, painted over, and blown open with squibs on camera. Interesting. Um, man, I'm really thrown today. I'm not sure. So the one that's sticking out to me is number two. And it's because I know that Michael Mann had a factual basis for like a couple of the characters in this movie, like Neil McCauley is a real name of a real person who lived in, I think, the 60s. And, you know, he based this character on that and just set it in present day. I don't know if Wayne Grow was a real person. Wayne Grow is such a weird name that it's almost like uh, he has to be real because that just sounds it sounds too <laughs> fake to be fake. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one in three also could be true. One sounds pretty plausible. Number three. I don't know. That sounds sure. Is that like the entire premise of your guessing? Which, which of Brad's facts sounds too fake to be fake? <laughs> kind of, yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to lock in number two as my falsehood. Bob, fact number two was indeed a fact. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. There was a real criminal in Chicago named Wayne Grow, and he was really found in northern Mexico where his body was nailed to the side of a shed. Yikes. All right. What was the falsehood? Crime doesn't pay, kids. Uh, the falsehood was fact number one. Hmm. It did not set a record for most shots fired. Honestly, I just thought the number was so high. I was like, someone must have counted all those numbers because that's that's a lot of shots. It, so surely I mean, that's it's, true. It's, it's the internet. So I'm sure that somebody at some point has counted the number of shots in the movie. I did read a fact that each take of the bank heist scene, they fired two to 3,000 shots. Wow. So I kind of use that as a gauge to mm-hmm. be like, yeah, you know, like 4,000 in the movie. Well, that sounds good. <laughs> All right, man. So uh, that's my first loss in the last 48 weeks. Yeah, it's crazy, man. I- I'm so proud of myself. <laughs> you finally toppled. I was going to say, fun fact. This is an actual fun fact. The Washington Generals do not lose every game. Can you imagine buying a ticket to go see the Harlem Globetrotters and then seeing them lose to the Washington Generals? 
I I kind of would want to. Absolutely like, I, not. Like I remember going uh to a Phillies game when I lived in Philadelphia and oh what was his name? He was kind of a long-term journeyman pitcher. He was later in his career playing for the Dodgers and he pitched a no-hitter. Mm. And like I did the math and the chances of seeing a no-hitter in like live in person are like 0.2% <laughs> at any game you'd go to. <laughs> and I feel like watching the Generals win would be a similar, you know, chance. Yeah. <laughs> equally history, equally historic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, man, before we get out of here today, you know, I don't really know that we need to go super deep on the themes of heat because we hit on most of them last week in collateral. Uh, other than to say, I just think this movie does it significantly better, like the angst and the existentialism and the uh, the doubt about one's own. Uh, choices and is their destiny. I just think it all works here in ways that it didn't. It felt kind of shoehorned into collateral for me. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that for me, what really worked in this film was the actresses, mm. you know, the the wives, if you will. I just feel like they give a, a lived in feel to the world that you didn't have in collateral. Yeah. Texture. They add texture to this. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, 100 percent. And so I, I, I think all three of the female leads give really great performances. But I think for the story, their performances draw out the types of men that these main characters are. Mm -hmm. And you kind of see them for the scumbags that all of them really are. And and yet their dedication to the job is what makes them so great at it. So you, I don't know. It's a it's a movie that is full of shades of gray. Like De Niro's suit. <laughs> Speaking of shades of gray, I want to talk a little bit about Michael Mann's visual stylistic uh, choices in this movie, because I think that's where this movie really becomes influential. There's a couple things about this movie. And, you know, I said this a few weeks ago with The Big Lebowski that I couldn't believe this movie was 25 years old. And a lot of that had to do with like the general vibes and how I think comedy has kind of leaned towards the Lebowski bent over the last 25 years, but it's also the way that Roger Deakins cinematography looks. And in this movie, it's very similar, man. It's the cool color palette. It's the big empty spaces. It's the sleek uh, building designs. It's the dapper suits. It's the empty LA streets. I think that, you know, I mentioned last week, the obvious comparison here is that Christopher Nolan took huge inspiration from heat for the dark Knight. And if you watch that opening bank heist in the Dark Knight, it is it's heat set in the DC comic book universe. Yep. There yep. is so much of this movie in there. But from the from the bank heist on, so like at the hour and a half mark on, the score to this movie sounds like the score to a movie you'd hear in 2023. It, and the editing of this movie feels it has the rhythm of a 2023 action film. Like it is so far ahead of its time, Brad. This movie came out yeah. the same year as Braveheart and Babe. Like, mm -hmm. tell me that this doesn't feel 15 to 20 years more recent than Babe. Yeah. Well, and, and I'll say the one thing that really blew me away is the sound design in this movie. Mm. Like, I don't know who won the Oscar for uh, what, what's the Oscar for like sound design. Yeah, there's one for sound mixing and there used to be one for sound editing. So I don't know if they had them both back then. But yeah. I feel like it should have won one of those awards because the gunfight in the middle of downtown L.A. just has a crispness to to each and every gunshot that you don't hear in other movies. Mm. And, and I just thought it sounded so much more impactful than a lot of other you know action movies I've ever seen. I, I thought that his choice with the sound here was incredible especially when it was time to just cut the score and just allow the guns to be as violent sounding as they needed to be. Yeah. Uh, Braveheart won best sound editing. Obviously for uh, the I, dude, I'm not going to lie. Braveheart soundtrack is pretty killer. Yeah. It has nothing to do with the score though. It's just for the, you know, the swords. Oh yeah, that's true. Swords hitting each other and arrows hitting men in the butt. Yeah. And like, you know, men screaming as they get caught on fire and, <laughs> Yeah, no, Heat should have won there. As much as I love Braveheart, I think Heat was killer in that that category. All right, Brad. So we are two movies down in our Michael Mann, you know, retrospective here. And next week, we're going to be looking at The Last of the Mohicans, which is a very different type of movie to Collateral and Heat. 
And I just want to gauge at this point, like, do you feel like you have a handle on Michael Mann? And if you do, what would you say is his calling card? Hmm. I mean, so far, I think his calling card is action with a twist of philosophy. Hmm. That like that seems to be his goal is to like create the greatest action movie that he can while having characters that have deep philosophical motivations. I think it works incredibly well in Heat. It works pretty solidly in Collateral, but like you said, I, I love the word texture. There's there's not enough texture to either of their lives in Collateral. Like they only exist because they are together. Mm-hmm. It feels like. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just think he's missing out on something there that that he nails in heat. And I think for me that that missing thing in collateral is that they really nail down the idea of destiny and fate. And like there's a little bit of playing with fate in collateral, but it just doesn't it feels kind of forced because it's a one night movie. Uh, these characters don't know each other. And so they kind of start kicking around the idea of like, oh, is this fate? Whereas in heat. You know, the the final shot of the movie is this brilliantly composed shot of De Niro dying and basically like the plane that he would have been leaving on, like taking off and Pacino's holding his hand as he dies. And it's like the only moment of real connection in that whole movie of like intimate touch. And it's these two guys holding hands. And it really gets back to this idea of like. Was this just their destiny all along? Did they have any control over this or is this just who they are? And is this like, what is the end of that? What was this all for? And I think it it asks so many great questions that Collateral was just incapable of asking. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, man, I, I, I think that as we move into make it a double, this is a hard one for me because I could go the route of like, what's a movie that Heat influenced? And the answer is like every movie for the last 27 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to do a really unconventional one. And it's one that's on the theme of guys who are too committed to their job, who uh, understand that they're going to ruin their own lives. And it's not that they don't care. It's just that they don't know how to do anything else. And it really reminded me of this eight part documentary series from a couple of years ago called The Last Dance, where <laughs> where Michael oh. Jordan uh, very clearly showed that. His commitment to the game of basketball uh, is the only thing that gives his life meaning. And I hate to say that about a guy, but like very lonely man. Yeah. I saw I would pair this up with the last dance if you want to see a real life example of that kind of commitment and its toll on someone. I think for me, for make it a double, I'm going to pair it with a movie that is much lower production quality. But I think there is a, a lot of strangely similar themes that this movie follows the cops and it follows the bad guys and it follows some vigilantes. I think there's some great shootout scenes with just a massive amount of bullets being shot. I'm going to pair this with Boondock Saints. I feel like you've been like holding Boondock Saints in the back pocket, like waiting to slap it down on the table for a make it a double. You've Because you've referenced it a couple times before. Yeah, I think that Heat is the one to watch it with. Mm. Like, I, I, it would be a wildly enjoyable evening to watch. I, I would say watch Boondock Saints to, like, warm you up for all the violence and then get into Heat, which is is very clearly the better movie. All right. You say it's the better movie. I want to hear a final score here, Brad, because I agree. It's a really long movie. And yet the more I think of it, the more I'm like, I don't know what I would cut because I feel like even though it's it's a very protracted intro like it really gets you into the headspace and the lives and the rhythms of these guys and so it's almost like i don't recommend watching it in one sitting but i also wouldn't recommend cutting it down and because of that i think i'm going to give this movie a nine out of ten it's a really great movie and it works at exactly what it sets out to do yeah i i think i'm with you man i Man, I'm trying to I'm waffling between an eight and a half and a nine. I I think it's a really, really great movie. I think for me, the struggle was that for the first hour, hour and 15 minutes of the movie, it just felt like there was too much going on. He was pulling at too many threads. The the whole, you know, Wayne girl being a serial killer thing just was too much. But it has some incredible scenes. See, here's the thing. The final scene I love, 
but I hate De Niro's final line. Mm. Like, De Niro's final line represents zero of the character we have watched. Like, him not, him not getting caught is not his motivation in life. And so I, I was really frustrated that they put those words in his mouth at the end. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give it an eight and a half. All right. So we're at an 8.75 out of 10 on the movie Heat, but we want to know what you think. Hit us up on our social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, at Film Whiskey. Or jump onto our Discord. We are on Discord every single day talking to you guys, the fans of the Film and Whiskey podcast. So if you want to join the conversation, you can find a link to our Discord server at the end of every single one of our show notes. We'll be back next week with our friend, movie critic Daniel Joyo to talk about his favorite film of all time, 1992's The Last of the Mohicans. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>